legislator, mayor, county judge, and author. Nelson Wolf has had a long and storied career, but it wasn't the positions he held that gave him power. It was knowing when to push, pull, motivate, inspire, cajole, and even horse trade in order to get others into doing what was in the best interest of his beloved San Antonio. At the podcast studio at Lano Realty Partners, we sat down with former Bear County Judge Nelson Wolf to discuss his new book and how he sees government and politics from the outside looking in. First of all, congratulations on the book. Yeah. It's it's an exciting book. It's a little trip down memory lane, yeah. but it's also a playbook for people who are in office now or who are planning to run for office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it can be used. <laughs> uh, well, I like the fact that you told everything, blemishes and all, yeah. the times that you made a mistake, the times that you succeeded and how you succeeded. And when you did make a mistake, what was it that went wrong that you could have you know, you knew how to fix the next time around. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, I mean, it's an old trite saying that you learn from your failures, but you do. <laughs> you learn more from your failures than, and mistakes well, than you do from your successes. True. They're not much fun to go through at the time, but looking back, you know, it's just part of the system. Well, first, I, I want to touch on the fact that you pay tribute to Tracy because yes. you two were true partners, not only with her being sort of a, a sounding board or a moral compass to keep you, uh, you know, focused and uh, be the one willing to tell you the truth when others may not want to. But she helped you raise money for the children's court. She helped you raise money for the Bear County courthouse renovation. And I, I remember uh, she also helped you for the, for bibliotech. Yeah. You know, um, what was good about it, you know, you, you, your partner, and you got a great partner, same, same way. I do. Uh, she was head of the North Chamber for a good while. And, but, you know, you want to be like the oak tree and the cypress and the pillars of the temple. You want to stand apart, but you want to support each other in what you do. And uh, Tracy never got involved in my decision-making, as my role as mayor or county judge, and Whatever she wanted to do for children, <laughs> she took that lead and I followed. <laughs> well, that's a great story about the the trees, and I've heard you tell that before. And Christina and I do a lot of things together. We're partners in the business right now, but we're also chairing the fundraising efforts uh, for the Alameda. Oh, good. Now, this is round two for me because I was helping Henry Munoz a hundred years ago oh when he gosh. was when he was trying to renovate the Alameda right, and right. build the museum at the same time. Yeah. And it was too much and eventually he set the theater aside and focused on the museum, which now is a part of AM San Antonio. But you've you've been involved in the Alameda and, and have you been through it recently? Well, I haven't recently been through it, but I was mayor when we bought the building and, and when we appointed Maria Elena Tavala and, uh, and Henry Munoz to raise money for it 30-some-odd years ago. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he messed up by getting involved in the other and letting this one go. And now, thank goodness, y'all are stepping up and 
filling that void. And uh, I haven't been inside it, though. I, well, you need to, because um, a lot of people have these memories of 15 years ago and nothing being done and it being abandoned. And yeah. they've done a lot of work in there. Uh, they've poured concrete and they've re-leveled the floor. It's amazing how it's going to really become a different entity. I'm really excited about it. I think we put $6 million into it, the county did. I'm excited, so I look forward to now, having you down to take yeah, a tour. I, I, I want to see the inside. So I think they're down to about the last $10 million that wow. they need to raise privately and, um, and that sort of thing. But we'll come back to that. Let's just dive right into the book. You know, again, I think it's a good playbook for a lot of people. The name of the book is 95 Power Principles, Strategies for Effective Leadership in Local Government. So I want to go to uh, power principle number six, apply game theory in the mayor's race. There was a time when Lila Cockrell was mayor, and you said that polling showed that two-thirds of the people would support new leadership in the mayor's office if that new leader had a vision for the city. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Well, you know, at that time, it was a very contentious race because there were 11 of us in the race. Yeah. And so it was a very, very difficult, difficult race. And while they would consider um, uh, a new mayor, the question would be, could you enthuse enough people about your agenda, about your ability to lead the city? And it's a, it's a difficult uh, period of time going through that. Uh, but we were able to do that by employing uh, a number of the principles that um, that you have to be able to understand not just what you're doing, but what your opponent's thinking and what your opponent will be doing. So we were able to do that, and we were able to use that information to kind of catapult ourselves uh, above the other candidates. And uh, we managed to provoke her enough where she ran a negative ad on me. <laughs> and here we were clapping when a nasty ad was run against me because it gave us visibility. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think you, you mentioned in the book that she was resting on her laurels a little bit and, and I think maybe took some things for granted. Well, what happens to you? You end up getting a little bit of a cocoon and everybody telling you how great you are. Well, that's another chapter in the book yeah. is, is don't get stuck in an echo chamber. <laughs> that's exactly right. And you begin to believe you're as great as people tell you you are, and you're really not. <laughs> so you have to be willing to understand that there's people out there that think different, and you have to be able to relate to them and understand to their voices as well as those that might be telling you how great you are. So applying that game theory, uh, there's uh, two mayoral races that I want to talk about. One is Ivy Taylor and, and Ron Nuremberg. Mm -hmm. I think one of the problems that Ivy Taylor had was she told her campaign team uh, not to worry about the ground game, that she was taking care of that herself. She was personally overseeing that aspect. And then when she got into the runoff, uh, it became apparent that she only had three people working the entire city. So Ron put together a very successful and a very robust a team of volunteers and paid block walkers. And so I think that's that was a big uh, factor in that race, that she really didn't have – she was too dependent upon the air attack with the TV ad. Yeah, that was part of it. The other part of it is that she agreed to a huge number of debates, and uh, that always – and yours to the benefit of the challenger. The challenger. And um, 
Ron was very, very good at debates also, as well as the, uh, he had a large network of people that supported him in neighborhoods. So, uh, yeah, she kind of narrowed her base. And, um, and you know, it, it's all about we all go in with equal knowledge, and the better candidate figures out how to use that knowledge more than the, more than the other person, and that's really what it's all about. And then the second campaign is uh, Greg Brockhaus when he ran against Ron Nuremberg. To your point about uh, people wanting to support a challenger if they offer a vision for the city, in that particular race, is it a an example of it seemed like Greg was spending a lot of time talking about the downside to Ron Nuremberg but never really offered that vision of where San Antonio No, could you go. know, there's a couple of things. Uh, one is you want to have some vision, and people can relate to that. But when people go in to vote, most of them remember the negative aspect. I'm, unfortunately, that's just the way voters are. Maybe they go into the poll and maybe they remember only three things. With it, the negative thing is going to pop up to them more. So Greg Brockhouse was able to really hammer the mayor on a number of issues and almost won the race because of that. Vision is good, but there's also the give and take of uh, punching each other in a political race, and Brockhouse was really good at it. Well, let's go to Chapter 9, Embrace the Aura of Mayoral Power. One of the examples you talk about in there is how Cheryl Scully got beat up uh, by the police and fire unions. You reference uh, the combined law enforcement associations of Texas, and their playbook is find a scapegoat and use it, and they chose her. That's right. They sure did. And um, unfortunately, uh, that spanned out over three mayors, and neither one of them, neither one, neither one of the three got up and said, this is stupid to be filing this lawsuit. It, to your point, it. it started under Julian, yes. went under Ivy, yes. and then finally got resolved under... Nuremberg. A part yes. of it was the lawsuit that the city had filed against the unions because yes. of the Evergreen Clause. Yes. And I think finally the city dropped the suit. Yeah, after it was all over with and after they lost, then they dropped it. Uh, they should have never filed it probably to begin with. I remember Phil Harburger talking to me, well, I'm going to support the city manager. And I said, Phil, you might want to think about the fact you signed those contracts. (laughs) And so did she. So it was just didn't make a lot of sense. All right. Chapter 12, act first, create tension and get things done. In here, you talk about the Spurs move from the Alamo Dome to the AT&T Center. And I believe that's where you and I met. It was 1999. I was living in Austin but got brought in to run the Saddles and Spurs campaign. Yes. Um, And part of the problem then was the city, Howard Peake was mayor, Alex Bresenio was city manager. Cindy Cryer was the county judge. At that time, Mayor Peake and Alex were wanting it in the parking lot of the Alamo Dome. The negative issues from the public standpoint was you're taking away the, the one parking lot that the Alamo Dome has. Number two, you're digging up the old lead-tainted dome dirt, (laughs) which is an environmental issue. And number three, you're using a sales tax to pay for it. And you probably remember at that time there was the Human Development Fund that Mayor Peake had founded. He believed that the sales tax should be used to develop people to help get them out of poverty, to help get them a job, 
And the public was not a fan of using the sales tax to fund the new arena. So Cindy Cryer comes along and figures out, well, we can use the hotel motel tax and the car rental tax. And that's what won us over the town curmudgeon, Roddy Stinson, the columnist with the San Antonio Express News, because that meant visitors, out-of-city visitors were going to end up paying for the arena instead of local people who were paying um, sales tax. You were involved in that process, and and Cindy, Judge Cryer, took the ball. And, and really the reason that, th- that it won was because the rodeo got to benefit. You know, all the polling that we did showed that it was the rodeo benefiting as well as the Spurs that really allowed it to win on Election Day. Now, you're right. The rodeo makes a big, big difference. Uh, their network is very, very strong. They've got thousands and thousands of people that help them out, volunteer every year or so. And, you know, I, I don't know that it could have passed without the rodeo. I, I don't know your, I don't know what your polling showed or what y'all uh, it, thought. It, it, was only, it only had about 38% uh, when it was downtown and being paid for by the sales tax and not benefiting the rodeo. Yeah, yeah. So that was really critical to it. And now they're going through another iteration of that right now, as we all know. So I don't know how that's going to come out. They are. It also didn't hurt that we were able to get Peter Holt to negotiate with the NBA commissioner to have the season opener (laughs) on Election Day. Pretty smart. (laughs) So all the radio sportscasters were saying, hey, make sure you go vote before you come out to the game tonight to watch the uh, championship uh, banner. So um, since you mentioned uh, another iteration, one of your goals was to have a downtown baseball stadium. Yes. Now there's been talk of a new entertainment district that would include a new arena and a new baseball stadium for the missions. How do you see that whole effort? Well, it seems like right now it's a state of flux. Uh, I've met with the baseball people a couple of times. It's been a while, uh, but you're mixing apples and oranges here because the baseball guys have got to do something within the next year or two, or we may lose our franchise, and the arena thing can play out over the next eight years. So it's... uh, I think a little bit of a dilemma, you know, what is it you're trying to do now? So I don't know what will come of it all, but I do clearly support a downtown baseball park and, and, and would love to see that. But I don't know how how things are progressing right now. You know, I remember flying into St. Louis 30 years ago for a meeting and I'm in a hotel. I get in, check into my room and I open the curtains and I see the St. Louis Cardinals playing in the open air uh, field, and I went right back downstairs and said, "Hey, how do I get a ticket?" And I went. I went to the the second half of the game. There is that value of economic development yes. value of having yeah. something like that in a downtown. Well, I hope they're able to find the land to do it. You know, it's a little harder because uh, per square foot land in Central City has gone up pretty high now, and but I haven't heard whether they've uh, been able to get a site yet or not. Well, and the other confusing part is you not only have basketball and baseball looking for facilities, but you have two entities, the county and the city, yeah. um, that are in play. 
I don't know. We'll see what they come up with. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by Lano Realty Partners. They are a San Antonio-based commercial real estate brokerage offering a wide range of services, and they combine the intimate local expertise of a boutique brokerage with the advanced capabilities of a modern national brokerage to provide clients with a superior level of service. With a team of experienced professionals, Lano Realty Partners is dedicated to delivering results and exceeding the expectations of its clients. For more information, go to lanorealty.com. That's L-L-A-N-O realty.com. So in 1996, I ran a campaign for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to get their new football stadium. And I arrived right after the Buccaneers ownership said they would never leave Tampa and they had just gotten caught visiting with the Orlando County Commission. (laughs) So you've talked in the book, you talk about being burned by uh, the Florida Marlins, the Los Angeles Raiders, the um, New Orleans Orleans Saints, Saints, and that we need to tread very lightly when it comes to major league teams. Oh, yeah. and the, the soccer, Major League Soccer. soccer. was the, That was by far the worst thing I ever went through, a bunch of lines, whatever you want to call them. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, they, you know, they're just not trustworthy. <laughs> uh, they outright lie to you. So if you're ever looking at some team says they want to relocate to you, better be very careful about it because uh, they're generally – generally trying to use you to get improvements to what they have at home. And that's what happened with the Saints, and that's what happened with uh, the baseball team also. Uh, the other one that went to from Oakland, I think it was pretty clear they were going to leave, and L.A. was, you want to go to L.A., you want to go to San Antonio? Come on, figure that out. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. pretty easy. <laughs> one of the other big projects that you worked on was the $900 million university hospital. Yeah. And... If you played word association with the average voter here and you said county-owned hospital, most people probably wouldn't have the best perception of a government-run hospital. Yeah. But university hospital is stellar and is unique. And for many years, it was the only level one trauma facility here. And it seems to be... I'm assuming this has got to be something you're extremely proud of. Yeah, you know, we we did take a big bite in 2008 and approved $900 million in financing and funding and raised taxes, too, uh, to do it. But it was absolutely critical that we do that because the hospital district was floundering. It couldn't compete with the other entities around. And if we hadn't stepped up and, and taken that very difficult vote— and made it happen, I don't know whether our hospital district would even be around much today. And now it is a huge economic generator. Since then, we've also put up a bunch of bucks to build the Women and Children's Hospital. I was talking to George Hernandez uh, just uh, two days ago, who's uh, president of the University Hospital, and and he said they had their best year ever this last year. So, uh, it's a huge difference. It's providing a first-class teaching hospital for UT Health, uh, as well as uh, bringing in a lot of clients that 
that had their own insurance and were able to pay themselves. It's a absolutely stunning uh, deal in the commissioner's court. You know, we appoint the board of managers and approve their tax rates and their budgets and everything. So we're really quite proud of them. And then now they're building a facility on the south side, which is yeah. In healthcare fact, desert. I think I'm going to go to the groundbreaking on that. Uh, we had provided, uh, I think, a couple hundred million to build that. And uh, it, Southside needs another hospital, and uh, it'd be close to the A&M University. And so, uh, really proud of what they're doing. Let's go to Chapter Twenty One, our Power Principle Twenty One. When you lose big, pivot big. One of the things you talked about in that chapter was spending five years on the streetcar projects. <laughs> and you know, I um, I ran the successful nineteen ninety nine Spurs Arena campaign and thought I walked on water. Mm-hmm. And God had a way of humbling me by um, <laughs> p- putting me in the uh, campaign manager slot to run the light rail campaign. And I was there with you. In 2000, you were. You were one of the tri chairs. Yeah. It was you, Hope Andrade, and Richard Tankerson. That's right. Who I think Tank at the time was chair of the VIA yeah. board. Yeah. <laughs> and disaster. there were all sorts of issues there. But obviously, it uh, it went down in flames. But a few years later... You were working on the streetcar project, and then you had to partner with with you and Ivy came forward and said, "This is not working." Yeah. Well, you know, we worked on that five years. We had the funding for it from the state, from the city, and from the county. And over that five year period, and and, and the, it was very difficult to explain it all because the streetcar system was the, laying the groundwork for a more robust system that went out, you know, because they could all connect under today's technology. But uh, we started out, it was supported, but five years passed, and by then it got trashed into finally uh, there was enough opposition to kill it. And uh, it did get killed, and uh, I barely survived my (laughs) re-election because of my support of it. So it was one of those tragic events, in my view, stopping us from being a first-class city uh, like every other major city in the United States has. And in that chapter, you talked about um, you did not have a big pivot to go to. But no, I didn't. And I ended up, you know, really having a difficult re-election because I couldn't pivot over to something that would take their mind off of it. But then once you got re-elected, you were able to move on. And- I could move on then, but I was in a vulnerable position. You know, uh, when I lost the Applewhite uh, Reservoir vote when I was mayor, I pivoted to protecting the aquifer, and that overcame any loss on that. But I didn't have anything to pivot to in that short period of time and pay the consequences for it. The name of your book is 95 Power Principles. So I want to talk about power for a minute Chapter 47 is called Catch the Wave of Changing Power Blocks. Mm -hmm. One of the things you talked about was using the Northside Neighborhood Association to help you in many of your initiatives in your reelection, but also in the initiatives that you were supporting. You also referenced TechBlock and the role they played in getting Uber and Lyft and ride-sharing companies uh, in the community. You made a reference to a power shift away from the greater chamber to the North San Antonio chamber and the Hispanic chambers. There's a current dialogue going on right now in the business community about where the business community is and how they can become more effective because previously the business community was run by General McDermott at USAA, by Bartel Zachary at Zachary Corporation, by Red McCombs and by Lowry Mays at Clear Channel and 
those are titans of industry that are that are all gone. Charles Butt is still involved in the community, but in a very low-profile way. And then you have other people like Randy Smith and and uh, Graham Weston and others that are Hope Andrade, but we're more of a decentralized business community. So talk about how the the, the business well, community is it, substantially changed. You know, you still have the developer ones. You mentioned that with Graham Weston, and they've always been around. Whether they were developers on the periphery or developers on the inner city. So they've always played a big role. The traditional business business community does not play a big role anymore. You don't have any titans like we used to have that really drove issues, got out there, supported a candidate, got out there, put up money for bond elections, took the lead. Most of the CEOs are tied to their corporations today, and they help. They make good donations, but uh, politically— uh, most of them just stay away from it. And do you think that partially that's because many CEOs today are coming in from out of city and they're here for a few years and then maybe they move on to somewhere else? I think you're, you're exactly right. Versus a home yeah. because Red McCombs, Bartel Zachary, they were all local. Tom Frost. They were all homegrown. Yeah, they were homegrown and local and, and um, totally committed to the city. McD probably spent as much time on trying to build the city up as he did on running USAA, you know. And But you just don't see that kind of commitment today that we had before. At least I don't see it. Do you see that changing with, um, you, at the same time, we also had three chambers without CEOs at the same time. Uh, Richard Bettis left the Greater Chamber. Uh, my wife, Christina, left the North Chamber. And Marina Gonzalez left the Hispanic chamber. So you had three chambers uh, without CEOs uh, for the better part of a year, and that probably didn't help the situation. No, it probably would, but but you're right. I did hear that several business leaders that got together and said, what's the matter? We we don't seem to have any influence anymore, and uh, what they're going to do about it, I don't know what they're going to do about it. I hear these groups, we're going to raise money for city council. Well, then they put in a pittance and <laughs> yeah. doesn't make any difference. So I don't know what may come of them, uh, but I know it's different than what it used to be. And now we have the San Antonio Equity Alliance and we have a better SA, two 501c4 uh, political entities that are playing on the political side. Yeah. So to your point, that sort of fills a, fills a void. One of the things you talked about in Principle 56 is forming regional alliances. You were a part of that effort that started the Association of South Texas Communities, and that helped you with the support you— For NAFTA. For NAFTA. Yes. It was really critical, and uh, I think we became known as the most pro-NAFTA city in the United States, and we all would go to Washington and lobby for it, and— and uh, we had the signing of the NAFTA agreement here. We got it passed in Congress. We got the North American Bank here. Um, so it was really a regional effort that, that really made it happen, I think. And then you point out how your successor, Judge Sakai, is continuing with what— um, Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I was pleased that he was reaching out to uh, South Texas. Uh, that's really our heritage. We've 
always been somewhat known as the capital of South Texas, you know. I think we relate more to South Texas than we relate to Central Central Texas. Because you have what looks like a, a diamond or an upside-down triangle. You have San Antonio at the top, and it goes down to Laredo and across to Corpus and down to the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, uh, I know Mayor Nuremberg partnered with uh, Edinburgh Mayor Damiro Garza to start the Alliance of South Texas Mayors. That's great. Um, and Texas Regional Bank has hosted several of those in the in the valley, and they've been involved, and so those regional alliances uh, come in handy. They sure do. Yeah, it helps a bunch. So, power principle number sixty nine: fight the state for local freedom and authority. Um, one of the things that you call you reference is House Bill twenty one twenty seven, whose official name is the Texas Regulatory Consistency Act, but everyone knows it as the Death Star Bill, <laughs> and you lay it out. Because you're saying the Republicans used to believe in local control until Democrats came in power and took control of the the big cities, Dallas, Fort Worth, well, Dallas, uh, Austin, San Antonio, Houston. Yeah. Because Fort Worth was still being run by Republican mayors. Yeah. But would you agree that, that both parties tend to push each other further and further to the extremity? Because— I think that the the Death Star bill was a reaction to the defund the police movement. Um, which and, never happened here. Yeah. <laughs> which never happened. <laughs> not in Texas, not in the Texas cities. But, um, yeah, it, it, the, you know, there is a one in there about political parties have become more like clans and tribes and have uh, pushed out moderates out of both sides of the party and uh, done away with a good— Part of bipartisanship is a struggle to get it done today. So, yeah, that's that's part of it. Another part of it is that, you know, local government's closer to people than state government. You know, you elect every elected official here and right here in San Antonio in the legislature. You elect maybe 10 percent or 15 percent and 85. You have nothing to say about them. So unless you got a ton of money. <laughs> so you, local control is where it is. And, and if people don't like what a given council has done or commissioner's court, I mean, all they have to do is go to a poll and change. And uh, so I, I think government closest to the people should be respected in the state is not respected local government. We're in a post-pandemic world now, and you spend a lot of time in elected office, working on economic development and working on producing a skilled workforce. You talked about the Alamo promise that you worked on. You talked about creating an economic development director position over at the county. You know, that was a 20-year investment before the effort paid off with Toyota. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of trips to Japan. But you all saw the value and you added the leadership to saying, this is an investment that we have to make if we do want to get a big company like Toyota to come here. Well, yeah, I mean, you you got to be careful you don't give the farm away. Yeah. <laughs> and we never did. It was always contingent on the jobs that were created and the pay pay for each job and over a period of years. And we never got crazy like some other states did and some other cities did giving everything away. So that incentive helped. And then the as we really began to understand things better, we knew we had to do better on 
job training and getting people ready for the workforce in the college district played a big role in that. Private sector did too. So if you're not creating jobs, then things go down and everybody gets hurt when that happens. If you start your, your economy trailing down the other way, then that's probably one of the worst situations you find yourself in. And uh, so it's important that you keep your economy running right. What, what we're seeing in Japan, I think, is an example of that, just sheer decline because they're not having children. No, and, and you know what? We're getting pretty close to that ourselves. I think if you tuck away the immigrant immigrants, we'd probably be at about a zero population growth. And, um, and we're, we're a country of immigrants. I know we got a problem on the border. We certainly do, and it's got to be slowed down and get to a reasonable level. But if you let immigrants that are qualified, honest, and passed all the tests and are willing to work hard, uh, they'll work harder than most people here in this country. And um, we just need to be smarter about how we do it instead of just politicizing it all. It, it is an issue because cities and companies are not built on foundations of stagnation or decline. They're, they're built on foundations of growth. That's right. And when you lose that growth, is the, the the beginning of the end. You have, we're seeing school closures in the northeastern part of the United States. We're seeing uh, the Catholic diocese has closed hundreds of churches because they're just, yeah. that, that's twofold. One, there are fewer people, and two, there's a decline in, in uh, going to an organized religion. Yeah. Um, but we continue to face these challenges, and hopefully after this election, or even before we can resolve the issue on the, the Texas-Mexico border? Well, I hope so. Uh, there's been some indications. The Senate's getting close on a bill. It's, if we'd all be reasonable and quit demagoguing on both sides, uh, we'd be better off. Uh, a, a valid, strong immigration policy that allows people to come here that are qualified will help this country. The way it's working today is just broken. I want to end um, on, on a, by reading a couple things from your, your book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of them is uh, Power Principle Number 37, Build a Chamber that Exemplifies Political Power. Mm-hmm. And we talked about Roddy Stinson, who was the, the town curmudgeon <laughs> in San Antonio. He was an opinion uh, columnist with the Express News. And so you say here, In 1992, when I proposed to remodel the space as a new council chamber, this was a building that was a former bank building um, that the city city owned. Express News columnist Roddy Stinson wrote in part, quote, We are sick of scams and schemes and tired of subterfuge and chicanery. If you have one stamp, write a letter to Wolf. He is the chief sly boots behind this Versailles West plan. I thought that was one of the greatest sentences I've ever read. I even <laughs> called him and congratulated him. You know? <laughs> I was the brunt of it, but what a beautiful sentence. So, I mean, he, he was able to take certain words, and this is where emotional intelligence plays a bigger role than IQ. You couldn't help but read that and be emotional about it in some form or fashion, whether it's wanting to kick my butt or whether it was to support me. <laughs> he, he, he hit the emotions, and that sentence uh, was a very uh, 
very great uh, structured sentence to do that. He, he was a master wordsmith. <laughs> he was. He um, was. The second story I, I want to finish with is um, uh, Frank Madla. Senator Frank Madla, one of his constituents approached him and said, Senator Madla, may I call you by your first name now that you're out of office? <laughs> And he said, yes, you may. And the constituent said, well, thank you, Frank. And he said, um, my first name is Senator. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens when you leave office, you've lost your first name. <laughs> you have to get a new name. <laughs> well, this was, um, you know, you talked about leaving at the top of your game and uh, your long goodbye. I was there at the state of the county when you announced at the very end yeah. that uh, you were not going to run for re-election. And it, it obviously took a lot of people by surprise, but you were trying to leave at the top of your game, to your yeah. point. Yeah, it's always hard to do that. You know, uh, I think I mentioned in the book somewhere I saw a deal of Wall Street Journal where they were hauling this uh, uh, executive out on a dolly uh, with a potted plant on him to get rid of him. <laughs> I decided I don't want to go that way. <laughs> so you try to figure out, you know, when, when if you got a lot of your projects done and you and you and you feel good, you know, you, you just shouldn't cling to power just because it's there. I mean, come on, you're there to do something and get your butt out of the way when you're through. <laughs> do you have any advice for current elected officials? Beyond what's in your book. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to give a little talk tomorrow, and uh, I'm going to end it with people asking uh, asking them to support uh, candidates that are believe in civility, that believe in protecting our democracy, that believe in bipartisanship, and are honest and moral. Do that. And this country will be a lot better off. And that's what I would recommend to them. When Texan Bob Strauss, former U.S. ambassador and advisor to U.S. presidents, was asked what the favorite part of his career was, he responded by saying, the whole damn deal. The same could be said for Nelson Wolfe, who has used his influence in Austin, the city of San Antonio, and Bear County to improve the lives of people in his community. His book, 95 Power Principles, is available in bookstores and online and should be required reading for all elected officials as well as college students studying government. Beyond the Bite is a production of Aldrete's Strategic Partners and is edited by Nick Chamberlain of Every Word Media. From the studio, Atlanta Realty Partners, as always, we thank you for listening.